Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 20th of February, 2023, and this is episode 289. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr. Porrick Travers about his recent book, Donegal, The Irish Revolution, 1912 to 1923. This book looks at County Donegal during the Home Rule Crisis of 1912 to 1914, the Great War, the War of Irish Independence and the Irish Civil War. This book is published by Four Courts Press. Porrick spoke to me from his home in Ireland. Porrick, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Before we start, could you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and Donegal? Thanks, Tom. Thanks for inviting me to participate in today's podcast. I'm a Donegal man by birth. I studied history in Dublin in the 1970s. I did an undergraduate degree followed by a master's on conscription in the First World War. Uh, and that then I did a PhD in the Australian National University. Uh, since then, I've worked mainly in teacher education as a historian and as a teacher educator. Uh, my interest in the First World War, First World War goes back to my master's thesis. Uh, more recently, I was invited to, to write the Donegal volume of the Four Courts Press County History Series on the Irish Revolution between 1912 and 1923. Um, uh, I think it was the Weaver Port James R. from Antrim, who once wrote that the savage loves his native shore, though rude the soil and chill the air, uh, writing a history of the Irish Revolution in Donegal, my home place, has been for me a, a, a labour of love. Which needs me, leads me neatly on to uh, my next question, is where exactly is Donegal in Ireland? Donegal, it, it's the fourth largest county in Ireland. It's located in the northwest of the, of the country. Its mountainous terrain and remoteness have shaped its history and development over the centuries. It was the last of the independent Gaelic lordships subdued during the the Tudor conquest of the 16th century. And the Ulster plantation, which followed in the early 17th century, left an enduring mark on Donegal, not least in in terms of land ownership, religious diversity and Anglicisation. Writing in the early 20th century about the East Donegal part of uh, the area of Donegal called, called the Lagan. Um, Re- Reverend Alexander Le- Leckie said that there were two Donegals. One was an outer and the other an inner. Uh, the part to the east of the county was fertile, strongly Protestant. The part to the west was mainly mountainous, poor and Catholic. Um, in 1911, at the beginning of this period, the population of Donegal was 169,000 which was a decline of more than 40% since the Great Famine of the 1840s. Um, Of that population, about 60,000 were bilingual English and Irish speakers. Um, In terms of religion, Donegal was 79% Roman Catholic, uh, but it had a relatively large Protestant population. 11% population were Protestant Episcopalian, 9% Presbyterian, and 1% Methodist. 
I should expect Donegal was a, a largely rural country. Um, the northwest of the county was closely linked to the city of Derry. The south of the county was economically linked to Sligo and to Enniskillen. Um, while it was a, a poor county, but by 1911, it, it had begun to benefit significantly from investment under the aegis of the Congested Districts Board, which was a quasi-autonomous government department which aimed to address poverty and congestion by improving fishing, cottage industries, and so on. There was also a, a systematic investment in, in, in light railways, which meant that the, the county had a, a well-developed rail network. Uh, unfortunately, much of this improvement work was uh, disrupted by the First World War. And then finally, in, in the area of land ownership, um, they, in, in, in the early 20th century, um, four, four major landlords owned estates of over 30,000 acres, and there were 188 holdings of more than 500. But on the other end of the scale, um, there were very large numbers of, of very small uh, unsustainable holdings. Uh, there were, in, in, in 1910, there were approximately 2,000 holdings of less than one acre, and 73% of holdings, land holdings in Donegal, were less than 30 acres. So, in a sense, the issue, the big issue uh, in the country about land ownership was, in, in some respects, for many people in Donegal, an irrelevance because uh, if you only have farmed one, one acre, it didn't greatly matter whether you owned it or not. Um, it, there were questions about the sustainability of that, and most of the smallholders had to subsist through either seasonal emigration or fishing or other involvement in other economic activities. So at the period that we're looking at, which is 1912 to 1923, obviously the First World War is in the centre of this uh, time period, we have the Home Rule Crisis. This is about the third uh, Home Rule Bill being passed by the Aswith government to give Home Rule to the island of Ireland. Now, how does this uh, affect Donegal? Obviously, it, it's mainly, mainly focused in Ulster, uh, mainly around Belfast and the Protestant majority in, in Belfast. How does it affect um, it, the, the county on the far west of, of, the, of the peninsula? In, in Donegal, uh, both nationalists and unionists tended to see home rule in, in biblical terms. The, the, the nationalists saw it as home rule as, if you like, the promised land. Uh, which they had been agitating for from the 1880s with uh, Parnell and the origins of the Home Rule movement. Uh, whereas Unionists, uh, particularly in East Donegal, uh, saw it as Armageddon. Armageddon. It, it, they saw it as a threat both to their religious and to their economic uh, well-being. Um, because of the, the, the slow passage of the Home Rule Bill uh, through the House of Commons between 1912, 1930-1914, there was a gradual build-up of opposition uh, to to Home Rule, particularly in in, in Donegal and parts of West uh, Ulster. Um, th that's reflected in the growth of unionist clubs, the emergence of, uh, for the first time, of paramilitary activity. Um, a, a lot of uh, order was brought to the anti-Home Rule movement by the Ulster Covenant, uh, which was signed on Ulster Day in, on the 20th of September 1912. In Donegal, 18,000 signed the Covenant or the Associated Women's Declaration. That was a, de a declaration to resist uh, home rule by whatever means uh, were necessary. Um, that figure of 18,000 would represent about 73% of those eligible to sign in Donegal. 
which those eligible to sign were those over over sixteen. Um, that that the passive resistance, if you like, uh, was followed by a, a, a more organised preparation for other kinds of resistance with the establishment of the Ulster Volunteer Force, uh, which grew fairly rapidly in East and North Donegal um, from the, throughout 1913. It received a, a major boost from the visit to Donegal by Edward Carson, the Unionist leader, uh, who addressed a very large gathering uh, in October 1913. And he, he assured Donegal Unionists that we will not desert you. Uh, they, their fear was that if there was a compromise settlement which would involve partition, that they would be left on the wrong side of the border. Uh, they'd be included within Home Rule Ar Ireland and their co-religionists elsewhere in Eastern Ulster uh, would be excluded from, from Home Rule. Um, but that, that, that promise uh, by Carson was something that came back to haunt him uh, and, and caused a great deal of bitterness from Unionists in Donegal, who later felt that they were deserted uh, by the settlement that ultimately emerged in 1921, 19, 1922. Um, they, so the, the, the development of the, the, the Ulster Volunteer Force, um, I think, represents a, 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 the manifestation of the fear of, of, of what was to come if Home Rule uh, became law. Um, by 1914, there were about 3,000 uh, organized, well-drilled, well-armed members of the Ulster Volunteer Force uh, in, in Donegal. Um, the nationalist response was, was slow, but uh, at the end of in November 1913, saw the emergence of, of the National Volunteers, which were a rival group who were mimicking uh, the Ulster Volunteer Force. Um, the the na National Volunteers, the nationalist group that emerged in Donegal, were much more numerous, as one would expect, but less well-armed uh, and less well-trained. Uh, but in the early years of, 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 of 1914 and the, leading up to the, 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 the First World War, the signs were ominous. Uh, the dangers were there of some kind of a major clash. And do you think that was realistically likely to happen in Donegal? A lot of historians have argued that. But what was the situation in the countryside uh, in Donegal? Well, there were some sporadic clashes, incidents, but in general, the leadership of both sides uh, were active in trying to avoid incidents because they, they, they didn't want to deflect the interest, the, the, the attention from uh, the, 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 the attempts at some kind of a negotiated uh, settlement. Um, but it was undoubtedly a very volatile, volatile uh, situation. The uh, senior RIC police officer uh, said that they, they, they commented in 1914 that the militarization of two communities was likely to have profound consequences. And ultimately, I think you can argue that that's ultimately what did, did happen. It took a number of years. But but that that if you have two highly militarized communities, uh, cheek and jowl, uh, that the, the, the danger uh, dangers of a, a major clash uh, are, are, are very high. In 1914, in June, the, the county inspector of the, the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, uh, in Donegal reported ominously that most people in Donegal expected that there would be civil war uh, if there wasn't a peaceful settlement. And both sides, he reported, were preparing for that eventuality. Um, the Irish Times in, in, in Dublin uh, predicted that if there was trouble over the Ulster question, it was not likely to take place 
in eastern Ulster, it would be in western Ulster, particularly uh, in Tyrone Derry and in Donegal, that you, that you, you would see significant trouble. Uh, and that's reflected in a rather strange move on the part of, of the Catholic Bishop of, of Rafoe in Donegal, uh, Patrick O'Donnell, who was a, not just a, a, a significant churchman, but he was also an active supporter of the nationalist, the moderate constitutional nationalist movement. Uh, o O'Donnell uh, wrote to, to, to John, Red John Redmond suggesting that it might be necessary to seek protection from the British army for the vulnerable Catholic population in Donegal and elsewhere in Western in, in Western Ulster, um, which is a, a rather unusual move for a, a Catholic uh, bishop. Um, there were several major or minor incidents of clashes, uh, but ultimately the war, the, the, the full-scale civil war was was averted uh, fortuitously, uh, some would argue, by, by the intervention of, of the First World War. Which is a neat segue into my next question. Obviously, the home rule crisis is, is put on ice, or one could say delayed, and war breaks out. Now, how did the unionist and nationalist communities in Donegal respond to Britain's entry into the war in August 1914? Well, there was initially, it should be said, almost a sense of relief. Uh, that the, And the, the initial response then was, it was an enthusiastic response uh, in most quarters. Um, they, th that enthusiasm fairly quickly dimmed for a variety uh, of reasons. And on the nationalist side, John Redmond, who was the Constitutional Nationalist Movement, uh, was firmly committed uh, to the war and prom promised Irish support, Irish nationalist support for it. And Bishop O'Donnell in Donegal, uh, who was a little less uh, enthusiastic, uh, was loyal to Redmond and, and, and fo followed his lead to a certain extent. But Redmond's vision for the, the Irish national volunteers being transformed into a kind of a national army uh, that would fight at the front uh, alongside the British army, uh, insofar as it was ever a realistic vision, it, that vision was thwarted. Whereas Cal Edward Carson was rather more successful with the creation of the 36th Ulster Division. So there, there are some examples in Donegal of, of UVF companies recruiting en masse into into the, the, the British Army. Uh, there are less, not as many uh, examples uh, of that happening with Irish volunteer, national volunteer uh, companies, although individual national volunteers did, did recruit, particularly those who had some previous military experience. Um, I think it's fair to say that some members of the UVF uh, were reluctant to re re recruit because of of the fear of leaving their homes undef you know in the in the kind of political circumstances of 1914 of uh, rather afraid of leaving their homes undefended as it were um it also sh should be said that the, the actual recruitment campaign was rather rather poorly organized and and, and at least initially uh fairly ham-fisted uh it didn't reflect the kind of particular uh, political and social context uh, in the county. It, it's difficult to, to, to estimate the exact numbers who, do, who did recruit, um, partly because of the, the military practice of assuming that recruits uh, came from the place that they enlisted, uh, which you, isn't nece doesn't necessarily hold true. For example, very many uh, Donegal seasonal migrants who traditionally seasonally migrated to Scotland uh, Many of those 
emigrated or recruited in Scotland. Um, they, they, one of the M MPs for Donegal estimated that 500 seasonal migrants from the Rosses area of West Donegal alone um, jo joined the, the army in Scotland. Um, probably more famously, Patrick McGill, the, the, the novelist and Navi, Navi uh, writer, uh, he, he joined up in London. Uh, he was wounded at the Battle of Luce in, in, in 1915, and he later uh, worked uh, propagandizing, trying to, to, to generate support for the war. <clears throat> and a lot of his stories were, were uh, published in the local press in Donegal as a way of trying to generate some enthusiasm. Um, the, the County Honour book in Donegal for those who recruited and those who died um, suggests that almost 8,000 Donegal people recruited and that 1,200 died. Now, that, that figure is significantly inflated because that includes anybody born in Donegal who may have emigrated, they may have recruited in Australia, New Zealand, uh, in, in Scotland and in the United States. Um, so a, 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 a figure of a, maybe a little bit more than half of that, 8,000 recruiting uh, is probably closer uh, to the mark. But be bearing in mind the agriculture na nature of the county, uh, the number wa wasn't uh, as as small as it, it uh, as it might appear. The the recruitment in the larger towns in Letterkenny, uh, in Ramelton, in Ballyshannon, the, the recruitment in in the larger towns was actually uh, quite respectable uh, comparatively. Um, there's one incident that's wor worth mentioning. Um, it's the, the, the sinking of, of the HMS Audacious in October 19, 1914 uh, off the coast of Donegal. Um, it was the largest battleship sunk by a mine. Um, and Admiral jo John Jellicoe uh, ordered that the news of, of the sinking should be suppressed. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't officially announced until the end of, end of the war. Uh, although it was well known in Donegal that that that, that had indeed sunk, the Jellicoe had been uh, temporarily uh, located in in Loch Swilly, uh, in Donegal, uh, where the main base of the Grand Fleet uh, was located, pending the upgrade of, of, of the facilities at at Scapa Flow, um, and and Loch Swilly and Donegal remained for the duration of the war. Uh, they they the base of a lot of the escort ships for the North Atlantic. Um, so there was quite a, a deal of naval activity off the coast of Donegal. And it, it seems to me that there was a, a lost opportunity there to, to generate enthusiasm for the Navy uh, in the North Donegal area. Um, but there seemed to be a reluctance uh, uh, to, to, to go down that road. So how does the war affect sort of people living at home and their, their sort of way of life and their sort of standards of living? Or living standards, rather. Well, obviously, there, there are there is a personal impact uh, on, on on those whose relations have joined up, and there there, there is a fairly active philanthropic uh, activity on, on on the home front in support to supporting supporting the troops uh, uh, in terms of provision of blankets, sphagnum moss. Uh, the Red Cross is very active in in, in Donegal. Was very active sphagnum moss association uh, in the county. Um, but in terms of people at large, I mean, obviously the the, the war uh, generated very high prices, particularly for 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 food for ag agriculture produce, uh, and that drove higher wa higher wages. 
obviously the farming community benefited significantly uh, from from high prices for food, um, and it, it, it which caused a problem for recruitment because um, the allegation was that not just nationalists but unionist farmers didn't want their sons joining up because they were needed at home because it was a good time for for for, for agriculture. Um, but they, they, the in West Donegal where there was a considerable amount of poverty, a lot of the the, the woolen industry, weaving and so on and so forth was was reorientated towards uh, provision of of supplies uh, for, 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 for the front. Uh, and in the area of fishing, there was a major disruption of fishing off Donegal because fishing north of a line from Tory Island uh, of northwest Donegal, fishing was banned because of the, the naval presence, um, which meant that uh, the, the Donegal fishing industry, which had been supported by the Congested Districts Board and which had been growing rapidly, essentially collapsed, except for the local seasonal fishing, which which continued to go on. And I suppose finally, in, uh, on the domestic front or on the home front, um, there was a disruption of, 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 of migrants. Donegal was a county where there was always a flow of particularly seasonal migrant migration, but also uh, general migration to England, to Scotland in particular, um, but also to the United States. That was disrupted. In initially, there was a demand for labour in war industries, uh, and some migrants move, continued to move to, to Scotland and to England. But once conscription was introduced from 1916, uh, a lot of the, those migrants came back uh, to avoid conscription. Uh, and that in itself created to a political instability because you had a lot of young men who might, in normal circumstances, have emigrated, uh, who were, if you like, forcibly re remained at home, retained at home, uh, which was good news for sporting organizations, for clubs, for soccer, for the Gaelic Athletic Association, which was developing at the time. But it, it politically, it did contribute to, to a, a rise of, of, of political activity, particularly on the part of, of Sinn Féin and radical nationalism. Which neatly brings me into the Easter Rising. Now, this takes place in Dublin in April 1916. How does this event shape unionist and nationalist views in the county of Donegal? Well, I think Donegal follows the same pattern of the rest of the country. That is of a, an initially very hostile reaction, uh, uh, even on the part of nationalists, moderate nationalists. But then uh, fairly quickly following the, the executions and the, the reaction that the feeling changes. And you, you can trace that through the motions passed by local authorities in Donegal, initially condemning the rising and then uh, later beginning to soften a little bit and condemning the reaction to the rising. Um, the, <clears throat> the unionists in the county, I have to say, in, in general had, had less to say about the, the, the rising uh, I mean, the major event at that time in 1916 was the Battle of the Somme in the summer of 1916. Uh, and that became the big issue for, for unionists uh, locally because of, 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 of particularly the number of ca casualties. Um, but the, the rising did lead to a reopening of the political question, which had been the constitutional question, which had been shelved for the duration of the war. Uh, in the summer of 1916, it's it's reopened by Lloyd George, who commences negotiations, bilateral negotiations with nationalists and unionists about some kind of a part a partition settlement. But that had significant implications for Donegal unionists because 
if the, there was to be a partition settlement, the question was, well, how for partition for how long? And then for, for what unit of Ulster? Um, would Donegal Unionists, Cavan Unionists, uh, County Monaghan Unionists, would they be included within Home Rule or excluded, retained within uh, the, the, the rest of, of, of Britain, of the rest of the United Kingdom? Um, and th there were intense negotiations about that subject and you know, rather reluctantly, Donegal Unionists, along with their uh, their uh, uh, fellow Unionists in Monaghan and in Cavan, rather reluctantly, they, they they agreed to a temporary exclusion of Donegal or inclusion of Donegal with within the home uh, a home rule settlement. Um, they did that as as a, a, a sacrifice on to, to 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 not to interrupt or or, or disrupt. The, the war effort, uh, but it, it was a concession which later returned to haunt them because uh, obviously that's the kind of settlement that ultimately emerged in 1920 to 21. Um, so it, the, the, the reaction uh, to 1916 differed between unionists and, 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 and nationalists, but it, it reopened a lot of the constitutional uncertainties uh, which were to dominate then from 1916 to 1922. So how how following the Easter Rising, how did the how did the populace respond to the actions of Crown forces to repress um, Sinn Féin groups, and and also how did they respond to the ongoing conscription crisis? Well, in the short term, as I've said, the, the, the executions contributed to which followed the nineteen sixteen Rising contributed to a shift in nationalist opinion, um, and that continued in nineteen seventeen with the release of the, the prisoners, the Sinn Féin prisoners who had been interned uh, and uh, that may be seen to have been a mistake on the part of the government to, to so readily release some of the people who had been uh, who had been interned, who then proceeded fairly quickly to, to, to resume their, 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 their activities. Um, the, Sinn Féin in Donegal and the, 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 the radical nationalist movement in general it grew slowly after 1916 up to 1918. But the decisive landmark is, as you suggest, the, the conscription crisis of the spring of, of 1918 following the, the Ludendorff offensive. Uh, when, when the seriousness of that offensive became known, the, the British War Cabinet decided to extend the, the, the remit of conscription in, in, in Great Britain and to extend conscription to Ireland, Ireland having been... Uh, Excluded from conscription up to that point, um, while militarily it, it, the, 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 that decision may have made some sense uh, politically, it, it caused mayhem in Ireland because uh, the imposition of conscription was resisted by uh, a, a wide nationalist front, including the, the Catholic Church, uh, including constitutional nationalist uh, movements. Um, the, the editor of the the Donegal Vindicator. Uh, which was based in in, in Ballyshannon, um, expressed what was a, com a a common view at the time, and this this was somebody who, whose son uh, was a serving soldier at the time. But he said, "You might as well conscript a flock of sh of swallows or commandeer a cloud of midges on a summer's day." Uh, in other words, that uh, if you, it, re conscripting reluctant uh, Irish nationalists. Uh, to the war effort wasn't going to end well. Now, as it turned out, the, the conscription ultimately wasn't implemented, but the threat hung over Ireland for, 
until the end of the war in November 1918. But that that conscription crisis did uh, result in, in an influx of support into Sinn Féin, but also into the Irish volunteers, which later became the IRA. Um, so it, it, it it's a significant benefit uh, to the radical nationalist front. In, in, and you can see that in Donegal in the, in the numbers of members, not just of Sinn Féin, but of the Irish volunteers, later the, 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 the IRA. And that shift of, in opinion is, is confirmed in the 1918 general election, um, where in Donegal uh, there are four seats previously, all four held by the constitutional nationalist movement, uh, but three of the four seats were won by Sinn Féin very decisively, and the fourth seat was won by the constitutional nationalist movement, the East Donegal seat. But it, it, it was uh, won by the constitutional nationalists because Sinn Féin agreed as part of a pact to, to withdraw their candidate so as not to split the vote and allow, to, allow the seat to be won by the, the uh, unionist candidate in Eastern. And then shortly after the uh, armistice in 1918, early 1919, we, we have the War of Irish Independence or the Anglo-Irish War. This breaks, breaks out and lasts for uh, around two years. Your book describes the political and military campaign of the IRA and Sinn Féin in the county. Tell us how effective it was in Donegal. It, 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 it was probably less effective than elsewhere uh, in, in the country. But I, I think you right, rightly stress the fact that it, it's both a political and a military campaign and that the two of them are, are, are uh, inextricably linked. The, the, the political campaign was probably more successful uh, in Donegal. That involved taking control not just of you know national uh, representation. Obviously, Sinn, Sinn Féin had created... Uh, a rival parliament in Dublin and had decided to boycott the Westminster Parliament. But at local level, um, they, they moved to take control of uh, the local county council, local district councils, urban district councils, rural district councils, and so on. Uh, and that's reflected in the, the 1920 local elections, where there's a decisive uh, victory uh, for Sinn Féin uh, throughout Donegal with the a few possible exceptions, a few exceptions in, in East Donegal, where there was a strong local uh, unionist uh, population. Um, th that was part of a wider political policy of, of replacing all aspects of, of, of British administration in terms of setting up a rival court system, rival policing, um, boycotting the payment of rates or collecting rates and paying the rates to Sinn Féin rather than uh, to to the local government, the British local government board. Um, so it, it's an attempt to create a rival or at least a parallel apparatus, political administrative apparatus. It it, it succeeds to a certain extent uh, in 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 Donegal. It, it's an attempt to create a, a so-called counterstate. Um, it's it's never fully successful, uh, but it, it it certainly poses a very significant challenge. Um, it was achieved, its success insofar as it had success, was achieved in part uh, through the loyalty of some of the population, but also through persuasion, through boycott, through community sanction for those uh, who wouldn't comply. In other words, uh, you know, if you had a choice as to who you paid your rates to, uh, you know, you might be persuaded uh, that it might be best to move in one direction rather than, um, than move the other. On the military side, um, 
the, the, the campaign in Donegal as as elsewhere, it, it was largely against the police rather than against the, the British Army. There were relatively few direct confrontations with the army. Um, and what you got instead were uh, initially a boycott of the police and then isolated attacks on police barracks, um, uh, beginning with uh, an ambush on, on police in in, in, in the Dunlow area in December 1919, and then followed by you know, sporadic attacks on isolated police, police barracks. The, the, in Donegal, the, the police were very quickly forced to withdraw from large parts of West Donegal, um, where they were more isolated uh, and where they were more subject to, 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 to attack. Um, there were very few large-scale engagements between uh, what emerged as the IRA and the the the, the, the British forces, um, the, the the Ireland or Donegal was was seen as very much as a late starter uh, in this Irish uh, revolution. Uh, the, there's a period of organisation with outside organisers coming into the county to organise the uh, IRA and, and and Sinn Fein. They they initially operate on very much on a local parish basis, and then a more sophisticated structure emerged ultimately with uh, four brigades in, in, in Donegal and one flying column or so-called active service uh, unit. But the, the, the main target remained uh, the police and then later the, the, black, the black and tans. But if you look at the casualty rate, um, the casualty rate from all of this was, was relatively modest uh, compared to other parts of Ireland. Um, in, in, in total, between 1917 and 1921, um, there were only 22 military or, or 22 casualties, uh, fatalities. Um, and of that 22 in Donegal, uh, eight were policemen, four were members of the IRA. Um, there was only one soldier who was shot. He was shot accidentally uh, by a comrade in, in Finner military camp uh, near Ballyshannon. Um, so lo looking at that, that, that casualty rate, you can see that the the, the scale of activity in Donegal compared to other parts of Ireland uh, is relatively modest. And then how does the subsequent Irish Civil War affect people in the county? The, ironically, the Civil War had a bigger impact, um, both in terms of ca casualties, but also in, in, in terms of some of the activity that, that took place. The um, historian, great historian of the Irish Civil War, uh, Michael Hopkinson, in his book Green Against Green, said that nowhere... Uh, was the civil war more bitter and more forlorn than in Donegal? Um, it's not immediately evident why that might have been the case. Um, they, 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 in the county, the press, the clergy, the property holders, um, and opinion generally was in favour of the treaty, um, and with, with the treaty that was negotiated uh, in in 1921. One of the, the, the factors that did contribute to activity in Donegal was, was the presence of, of, of IRA fighters from the south of Ireland uh, who had moved up to Donegal as part of, a, 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 in response to partition. Um, and there were quite a number of those from Cork and from Kerry. There was an influx into the county and that, that contributed. These were more seasoned uh, guerrillas uh, and it, it, it uh, it, it contributed to a, a more intense conflict in the Irish Civil War uh, in Donegal than, it, than in the War of Independence. Um, in a way, there were there were two wars. Excuse me, <clears throat> there were two wars. 
One was a civil war between those who accepted this treaty and those who rejected it, between Republicans and free staters, as, as they were called. Um, but there was also a proxy war going on, which was related to partition, um, that uh, partition had been uh, implemented as part of the Government of Ireland Act and then uh, was confirmed in the Treaty of 1921. Um, so a new border had been implemented or was being implemented uh, between Donegal and um, the, the rest of Ulster. Um, and that had a significant uh, impact on well, Donegal nationalists and Donegal unionists. I mean, for Donegal nationalists, it 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 cut the people of Donegal off from the natural hinter, hinterland in the rest of Ulster, and for Donegal unionists, it cut them off from their co-religionists uh, in, in in the six county exclude in excluded area. Um, so it, it partition in a way was the big impact uh, of the, the the Irish Revolution, and it's working out in in the civil war. Uh, is what gives an intensity to the, some of the conflict that takes place. Um, one of the most celebrated uh, incidents at, at, in the Civil War was the the Battle of Balik and uh, Pettigo, which took place in May June May June uh, of 1922, where you get a a full scale confrontation between, on the one side, uh, the anti treaty IRA, the pro treaty National Army. On, on one side, and on the other side, the Ulster Special Constabulary in the north, uh, the, the specials, the, the, and then the British Army. Uh, and there's a full-scale confrontation along the border at Pettigal and at Balik, the border between Donegal and, and, and uh, Fermanagh, um, which is it, relatively short-lived, but um, it did, again, for a period, risk reigniting the, 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 the overall conflict conflict. Um, it, it, technically speaking, that's part of a border war rather than a civil war, given that it, 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 it's a war against partition. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, while the fighting on the, on the, the Republican side is, is largely done by the anti-treaty anti forces, uh, the government of Michael Collins, the free state government in Dublin, uh, was secretly arming uh, or allowing arms uh, to be sent north uh, to support that that border campaign, uh, so it, it was sort of rather murky uh, co conflict. Uh, but very quickly, May June, uh, the flashpoint passes. The ba Battle of Balik Petico uh, in May June of 1922 is a very significant encounter. It involved the IRA, the Republican IRA, the, the National Army, the Free. State National Army from the, the South, the Ulster Special Constabulary, the B Specials, and the British Army. Um, it is a full-scale uh, confrontation. There are uh, some casualties. Um, the, the flashpoint passes rel relatively quickly quickly after uh, a, a, short, a short period, um, but it does reflect the kind of complexity of, of the situation. It is essentially a frontier war uh, as a border is being uh, implemented uh, or uh, imposed it's a frontier war that of the sort that was uh, emerging elsewhere in Europe and and, and further afield. Um, that, com that that complicates the story of, of the civil war in, in in Donegal because, as I said earlier, you have a proxy war which relates to partition, and you also have uh, 
a, a war between Republicans and the Free State uh, who, who favour the settlement, the peace settlement negotiated by Michael Collins uh, in December 19, 1921. Um, that latter conflict, the conflict between Republican and Free Stater, uh, drags on for the rest of 1922 and indeed into 1923. But but by the autumn of 1922, the, the Republican forces in Donegal have been essentially driven out of the, the county or there are, there are very few few left. Um, the weight of public opinion seems to have been strongly in favour of the, 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 the free state side. Um, it peters on, it, the, the conflict continues uh, into the spring of 1923 and it ends rather uh, badly with, the, with, with reprisal executions in the case of Donegal uh, with the execution of, of four uh, Republicans uh, in March 1923 uh, at Trumbow in Donegal, who are, who are ex executed prisoners who were executed as a reprisal uh, for uh, the, the shooting of, of a, a member of the Garda Shikon or the police, a free state uh, police force um, uh, who had been shot shot earlier. Um, so it, it, that contributed to a, a legacy of, of, of bitterness. Um, the, the Irish Revolution, I, I mean, su summarising, uh, if you ask the question, who are the winners and who are the losers uh, in the Irish Revolution? Um, well, are there ever winners and, and losers in, in, in a revolution? Um, certainly, Donegal Protestants would not have felt that there the, the were winners in that revolution. Uh, there was a certain amount of displacement of movement of population from East Donegal uh, across the border after partition. Irish uh, Donegal Republicans certainly wouldn't have felt that they were uh, winners in that. Uh, the winners are, are more the, 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 the free state the free state side. Um, there were some social radicals uh, who, who wanted a, a more social revolution as uh, a social revolutionary change or transformation. Uh, they certainly felt disappointed. Uh, I don't think anybody felt particularly happy in the outcome of the Irish Revolution. Uh, 1912-1923. So final question is where can people get your book and learn more about your work? Well all good bookshops uh, it's published by Four Courts Press uh, and if they don't have it in stock uh, it's distributed by Eason's uh, so it's it's easily available from good bookshops or public libraries uh, if you order it. Porrick thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much thank you. That's great that's really really interesting. Conscription fascinating. It is, okay. It's interesting how, how the revolution is so different in every area. That's what's, you know, yeah. quite interesting. There are similarities, yes. but different. I mean, it sounds obvious, but, yes. you know, it, it's, it's just amazing how, how it varies from place to place based on geography and, and populations yes. and just proximity to, to the conflict. Yeah. And it, 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 it does beg questions as to what this revolution actually was with that. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. 
Until next time.